0: Welcome to episode 334 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you. There's nothing in this world I do.
0: Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I really appreciated. the uh, force you had when you said we're, we're part of the society reform podcast you just had like a little extra oomph this time <laughs> i feel like maybe
1: i was playing off of your intro there you you had like a lot of extra oomph there
0: did you like that's that i did. put a little gravel in it, it you know if you're listening to this for a while you don't want to hear the same intro every time do you so yeah it's good to switch it up a little bit we have to prove once in a while that like
1: it's not just a pre-recorded track we do that same intro <laughs> pretty much exactly the same way every week but we do it live because that's what the people want
0: that's true it's a bit like when you're so used to let's say driving to a particular location like maybe your place of work that you're halfway there or you get there and you realize you haven't thought at all about any of the decisions you've actually made that is kind of how this intro goes sometimes I could just do it and then I realize I'm saying words they're coming out of my mouth and hopefully they're right sometimes I give the wrong episode number. That's true And we just, we just roll with it. That's just how we do it. That is among the
1: most stressful times of my week is until Jesse says the right episode number, I'm like on the edge of my seat (laughs) before we get into affirmations and I wanted to ask you, since you talked about kind of autopiloting on the way to work, have you ever had the situation where you are going one place that's kind of on the same direction to work and you are on autopilot and then you realize that you've pulled into your work parking lot?
0: Yes. Yeah. For sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, you you know where I live, so you know, basically, if I want to go anywhere, it's the same direction as oh, I go to work. There are there are at least once uh, once a month on a Saturday, I take the exit to go to work instead of continuing past the exit to go to the grocery store. At least once a month, that happens to me.
0: That's totally fair. When my wife and I used to work in the same direction and we would carpool. I would say with some frequency, maybe once a week, she would go straight. She would have to take a left to drop me off, and there would be times where like, it's it's not necessarily early in the morning, but we're still getting into our day, and she's driving, and I'll be like, I need to go to work. No, no, <laughs> not, nothing. She's not even moving. Or I'll be like, I need to go to work, to work, to work. I need to drop me off. <laughs> no, sorry, last minute, like throwing on that blinker and trying to get over to the left yeah. wing. So. It That's happens. a wild thing. And yes, starting this podcast is a bit like that sometimes. And it's true. speaking of maybe going in the same direction or the same direction, but with a different exit, we're about to get in some adventures in Exodus 20.
1: Yeah, yeah, we are one of the things we'll talk about this uh, when we go into it. But one of the yeah. things that um, I think a lot of people coming into a more systematic uh, reform theology, more uh, kind of comprehensive understanding miss, there's a lot of historical reasons for this, which I'm not going to get into any of them, Um, but we miss that ethics, so how it is that the Christian is to live. Ethics actually, for most of Christian history, has been considered part of systematic theology. So our modern systematic theologies don't usually have a section on ethics. But if you were to go back to something like Calvin's Institutes, most of book four is Christian ethics. Or if you look at Bavink, um, there's good reason to believe that his, what's being published now is Reformed Ethics, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. There's good reason to actually think he intended for that to be a addition to his systematic theology that would have been published as kind of a volume five uh, in the next edition that he never got to. So this this is normal in the Christian, in the whole history of the church to attach ethics to systematic theology or dogmatic theology. It's really not until you get to like the enlightenment or maybe a little bit after that, that ethics became separated from systematic theology. So we're doing it old school Uh, We're going to include ethics in our systematic theology sequence here. And we're starting today uh, with that, that little foray into Christian ethics.
0: We're kicking it OG, because really, what is theology without belief and what is belief without action? So, of course, we should find this conversation firmly embedded in all of our conversations about systematic theology. But like you said, before we get there, and we're already getting a little bit too excited about this topic, let's affirm some things. What are you affirming with on this episode?
1: So... Most people don't know this about me, but I'm kind of a sucker for choral arrangements. Like, okay. and I like, I really like a cappella. And I think, although a cappella is not necessarily choral arrangement, it's the same kind of music of like taking disparate voices and turning them into basically like a single sure. instrument. So, like, the choir is the instrument, the whole choir is the voice. So, there's a, a children's choir actually that I've been listening to. Uh, that I quite like, called One Voice Children's Choir. Have you ever heard of these? No, I have not. Um, so I don't know the story. I know they were on America's Got Talent, and there was like a really sweet, sappy, saccharine story that went along with them, like most people who go on America's Got Talent. But it's it's just a bunch of really talented kids and a really, really passionate choir director, and they do lots of cover songs of pop music. Um, there's a lot They do a lot of Christian songs. So I'm not sure... I don't want to I don't want to speak into that too much to say that this is like a Christian group, but they they don't do like it's not like they're doing, um, you know, like a lot of time uh, choirs will do kind of classic Christian choral music. They'll do, you know, Handel's Messiah or they'll do Christmas hymns. They do like like uh mercy me songs like they sing i can only imagine and they do like that kind of popular christian music which seems like it would be strange if there wasn't some actual kind of christian influence in the the organization of this group um because it's not like it's not like there's a huge market for like pop christian songs in the secular world so if they if they didn't actually have some convictional reason to be singing these songs i'm not sure that they would be um and the songs People are going to, people are probably going to write letters to their congressmen about this, but it's not like I can only imagine my mercy me is like this amazing arrangement of music that just has to be sung. It's a fine song, but it's not like anything all that special musically. So the fact that they're doing it, I think there probably is some Christian influence in there, but it's, it's just good, solid music. It's wholesome. The music videos are fun because it's, you know, it's, it's a children's choir. So it's like The first half of the chorus will be sung by one kid. The second half will be sung by the other. So like, there's a bunch of different people doing semi-solos. So yeah, check it out. One Voice Children's Choir. Um, I'm a particular fan of the song they do from the Hercules Disney movie called Go the Distance. I just really like the arrangement they've done. I love (laughs) that. I I also love that movie. So (laughs) That is a good movie. You covered a lot of ground there. I have covered a lot of ground. the, The listeners have learned a lot of new things about me today, I think.
0: Yeah, that was very revealing in a, a pretty intimate way, which I appreciate. Yeah. People have already gotten their money's worth out of this podcast, which of course is is free. So yeah,
1: yeah. It's so really check it out. People. Most of their songs are on YouTube. Um, the the videos are fun because you get to see the kids singing, and they're all just fun kids. Um, I think I remember correctly, although don't quote me on this. I think I remember correctly that everybody who applies to be in the choir is in the choir. I don't think that they. I don't think it's an exclusive choir. I'm pretty sure one of the commitments is that any kid that wants to sing in the choir is given a chance to sing in the choir. Um, I might be wrong. But yeah, check it out. Um, You're on Apple Music. I'm sure you can get them on Spotify. Um, They have lots of good songs. Just fun, wholesome, upbeat, fun stuff.
0: Yeah, check it out. Maybe what the listeners don't realize is when one of us provides some kind of affirmation denial that the other hasn't heard of, generally their immediate response is to Google that thing, which of course I did. It's true. It came up. It came up right away. And so I have to laugh because you know how Google provides like all these questions people are also asking? So I just Googled One Voice Children's Choir and it was right there. Here's some of the questions Is One Voice Children's Choir Mormon? And it says some of them are LDS, not all. And so the group is non denominational. But here's what I loved after that because you know, Google gets like increasingly derivative. It's like tortoises all the way down. The yeah. last question is Do you have to be Mormon to be in the Mormon choir? <laughs> The answer is uh, definitive, yes. In case anybody was curious, yes. So if you're trying to infiltrate that choir by way of bringing the actual gospel to Mormons, it might be a little bit difficult. There seems to be some rigid rules around the Mormon choir. You have to be between 25 and 55 years of age on April 30th. I'm not sure why there's kind of like a retirement there, but apparently that's just how it goes. Yeah, I have to reside within 100 miles of Salt Lake City Tabernacle in Salt Lake City, Utah, which I presume is just a major matter of logistics but for what it's worth in case anybody was really concerned that we didn't address that we've just done it right now
1: yeah i'm having a really tough time not making just really mean rude mormon jokes on all of this so i think we should probably just move on thank you for your self-control yes i try i try very hard i don't always succeed but
0: today maybe i am i appreciate there's still a lot of podcasts left so we'll see we got time to come back to this we can reprise it pretty hard so, my affirmation is also musical, and it's possible, just like the whole popcorn situation with the coconut oil, once again, that I've already given this one, but I'm going to come back to it because I was just listening to it. So, I'm, you know, normally I'm trying to provide some music affirmations that are more current, but this one is not current. This is an album that was produced in 2009. It's from a band called So Long Forgotten, and the album is called Things We Can See and Things We Cannot. This is, it's so hard to label this thing. It's maybe like post-hardcore, but it's melodic, it's haunting, it's beautiful. The guitar and the percussion work is just absurd. It's really fantastic. The arrangements are really different, beautiful, enticing, they draw you in, and the lyrics are spiritual and deep. They're contemplative. So I can't say more than that because it's hard to say more than that. So I'm just going to encourage people, if you have any kind of interest in an open mind, because this is a little bit melodic. It does have a little bit of kind of spoken word within it, but it's deep. It's hard to put your finger on. So I'm just going to say, listen, stop what you're doing. Pause the podcast. Go to your favorite music app and search for So Long Forgotten Things We Can See and Things We Cannot. I think you'll at least find this to be different. And sometimes it's good to listen to music that's different. So check it out. It's true. It's
1: true. Yeah. I uh, I always like a good music recommendation. I don't listen to that much music.
0: So but yeah. Mainly just apparently children's. Here's, well, here's the other thing. So can I sneak in this affirmation? And this is kind of in response to what you said. I, and I, I do this um, a little bit, not begrudgingly per se, but I want to be careful to make sure that everybody knows I'm not necessarily condoning this. And now that's going to sound super mean based on what I'm about to say. My father-in-law is in a Southern gospel quartet and he has been for my goodness, like maybe 20 years. They're called the brothers in grace or B I G. (laughs) And you can find them wherever you can find music. But I say this because I'm not necessarily like a huge, like Southern gospel kind of person. And there is some some strange music in there. And a lot of it has like that, mm, 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 like that yeah. uh, kind of feeling, but super entertaining. Here's, they're, they're, first of all, they're great at their craft. So in terms of their musicianship and their vocals, fantastic. But they, on every album, they have at least one track that's acapella and it's hymns. It is glorious, absolutely beautiful. And their arrangements are, are just on point. Their voices are spectacular together. So I guess I'm gonna come alongside and say, based on what you said about having, just hearing voices sometimes. Voices in your own church by themselves, or voices and recordings, especially voices that are melded together in harmony or in parts. Like there's nothing like four part harmony is an amazing, amazing experience. So yeah, maybe if you're inclined, if you want to check out Brothers in Grace, David Tice, who is the lead singer there, that is my father-in-law. So we occasionally, at least once a year, we try to make it to one of his shows. They do something like 50 shows a year. So they do a lot of traveling, they do a lot of singing. And they definitely have groupies. Mainly, they're older ladies, but like they definitely have groupies. It's amazing. To
1: see. <laughs> uh, I just, I, I, I just can't. I can't. I can't. It's incredible. I love I'm that they have groupies. I, I mean, I'm not. I the the fact that they have groupies is not new information to me because you and I have talked about this before. But I just, it it just boggles the mind in the best possible way that this gospel quartet of Older guys has groupies. It's amazing.
0: What a world! Yeah, they're so good. I mean, again, not necessarily my jam in terms of like the musical style. However, they—my goodness—the shows are entertaining. Yeah. They're always presenting the gospel. Yeah, and people love it. Especially, they have like you know, it's like what you'd expect from like any show. It could be like a punk rock show or a hardcore show or like you know, like hip hop show. They have a table afterwards, and the ladies come up. It's they want to talk to them. They want to buy the albums. It's absolutely incredible. So, in their own small way, they are—they're rock stars. They are—they're rock and stars. And it's hard for me to conceive, but it is a super incredible thing. So, I think you can search for them on YouTube. You'll find videos of them. Yeah, they're—they're yeah. they're super interesting. They once—I know I can't remember. Oh, they opened for some. Some of our listeners will be like screaming in pain when I say this because they'll be like, "How could this be the kind of thing that you guys don't know about?" They opened for a group a couple of years ago called Legacy Five. I think it's legacy five. It's legacy something, some number. And that's apparently a very famous, well-known exemplary Southern gospel group. And again, people are like, How could you not know that right now? But that was like a big deal for them. And it was a totally legit show. So, like that, that's that group tours like nationally and internationally. And so they had them come along and open up. And I was like the wrong target audience because he said, <laughs> We're open for Legacy Five. And I was like, Are they good? And he was like, are you kidding me? So you know, that's how it goes. Anyway, all right, that's that's a ton of music for people to put in their ears, it's which they true. should never go do. Let's get a little bit, a little bit negative. Yes. What are you denying Let's against? Let's
1: get negative, negative, negative. Um. So, John MacArthur's conference is called ShepCon. I don't have any problem with ShepCon itself. I don't have a problem with the the concept. Um, so I'm not denying Shepcon, although I will never go to Shepcon because I don't have any interest in most of the speakers that are present at, at those conferences. But Steve Lawson at the most recent conference, and I recognize, this is my disclaimer on my denial, this clip has been circulated on the internet with zero context. It came in the course of a, of a session presentation, the original clip that was published was put on the internet by someone on Twitter named Terry green USA, that we are discovering lots of people are discovering, although we have never heard of her or interacted with her in any way, we are blocked from her. I don't know how that happened, but there are like hundreds of people that I, I've found a thread of, of like who is this woman and why am I blocked by her? She put, put a like a three-minute clip online. Someone else whittled down just this soundbite. So I recognize there may be context that clarifies this and makes it sound, makes it less bad than it originally sounds. But here's the quote. This is Steve Lawson. He says, quote, I think that 5% of John MacArthur is worth more than the whole evangelical world put together. Uh, And this is coming on the heels of last year when Justin Peters, who has a kind of discernment ministry thing, uh, Justin Peters uh, said that John MacArthur is probably the most significant theologian since the apostolic age, um, which is just historically ridiculous for anybody to say that. Um, John MacArthur certainly is very influential in the broader Reformed and and might even be able to say the broader evangelical community. Um, but just frankly speaking, John MacArthur probably is not even a footnote in in a church history book that's written a thousand years from now. Um, he's not on the magnitude of a John Calvin or a, certainly not an Augustine uh, or an Athanasius. Uh, he he just isn't. Um, and I actually think, I actually think that John MacArthur probably would say, yeah, I'd, I don't know why you would say that about me. Uh, but th- there's, I, I call this out with all of the proper disclaimers that there may be more context. Someone pointed out to me, and I hadn't even thought about this. It's possible that Steve Lawson was contrasting John MacArthur with kind of evangelicalism as this other movement that is not a good movement like I don't I don't know what he would be talking about but it's possible that the word evangelical John MacArthur isn't included and the circles of people that we would respect as theologians aren't included in the the grouping of evangelicalism I have a tough time. Believing that that's exactly what was being said, I actually think he was probably saying that like John MacArthur is just like that big of a deal that we could either have John MacArthur or all of the trusted evangelical theologians, and we would take John MacArthur. Um, I just have a really big problem with this kind of sort of hagiography and um, kind of hero worship. It it just feels kind of gross and sort of sycophantic, and it I don't I don't see how it brings glory to Christ. Um, again, I know there there's more context to this. I've been checking the Shepcon website for when this address, uh, the full address becomes available because I would like to to look at it in context and evaluate it. Um, but all I have access to right now is this little fifteen second clip of Steve Lawson saying that John MacArthur is worth more. five, not even John MacArthur, five percent of John MacArthur is worth more than the evangelical world put together. Uh, i just I just have a really tough time with that kind of um, Elevation of any particular man, and and I would I would feel uncomfortable if you said that about Mike Horton or about Mark Jones or any of the other reformed theologians that I really respect, um, living or dead. You say that about Bavinck. Say that about Calvin. I I just feel uncomfortable with that kind of elevation of a particular person. Um, I have a little bit less of a struggle with it when it's someone who's dead uh, and you're not at the, uh, in their pulpit at their church at their conference. Uh, it feels sort of. Uh, smarmy um so yeah I, I don't know how much more i have to say about that i just i saw that clip and I, it was kind of cringe i was like yeah i don't uh, it feels yucky it feels weird
0: it was a little bit gross hello hyperbole right like it would be different yeah. if i think the point of that whole statement is just to say john MacArthur's has had to influence a voice in a particular generation which we'd say well yeah okay that's fine this is one of those weird things. It is a cult of personality a little bit. Yeah. And speaking of cult of personality, my, I just was listening to this. Might I invoke some words from Paul Washer? And yes, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. <laughs> I, in, on Shylin's album, Still Jesus, he has an extended... Uh, Shai Lin puts both into one of his songs and there's like an extended track at the end where he's addressing this conference that he was at that was based around Christian hip-hop. And one of the things I appreciate that I haven't thought about in a while is Paul Washer starts his statement. He's going to give, I think, some kind of explanation of why he was there. It seems to me it was not necessarily extemporaneous, but he wasn't planning on speaking. But he launches in to start with, with how much this idea of flattery is sinful and how much he despises flattery. And I thought that's a good lesson for all of us. I was really just thinking about that. And, and you saying this, there's a tendency in those situations to want to give platitudes, to, buy, to be hyperbolic, yeah. to give like greater expression than is necessary to one who has had an impact. But we should just let our yes be yes and our no be no. So even if we are very charitable with that comment and say, like, he's just trying to convey that's been meaningful, we'll just say that. Let, let's yeah. not get out of control. And of course, you know me. Mathematically speaking, when I hear stuff like that, we start talking about like probabilities or percentages. I'm gonna be like, that's just so ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So ridiculous. Yeah. So it doesn't make any sense. And and then you go back to, well, if it doesn't make any sense, it's obviously hyperbolic. If it is hyperbolic, then let's just get back to the first principle what he's trying to say, which is there's influence and impact. And let's leave it at that.
1: Yeah. And I, I think there's a marked difference between saying something like this person is the most influential theologian of x period like that that is although still a subjective assessment that is an assessment of a relatively objective standard right we can say with rel- with good certainty that augustine is the most influential uh influential theologian between now and the, the apostle Paul. Like we can say that and it doesn't represent the same kind of hero worship because it's just a statement of the influence that that person has had. And if I'm trying to understand this charitably, which it's it's hard to understand it in any light at all, because we only have this short clip that's been publicized. Right. If I'm trying to understand it charitably, then you're right. That's all he's saying. John MacArthur has had a significant influence. And maybe even Steve Lawson is just saying, look for me, uh, as far as influences in people that I trust, I trust John MacArthur more than I trust right. anyone else. And right. if John MacArthur says A and the rest of the evangelical world or the whole evangelical world says B, then I'm going with John MacArthur. There are probably people living that I would say something similar of, right? If if I have the entire patristic, uh, you know, Nash, um, if I have the entire association of patristic scholars saying one thing and I have Don Fairbairn, who I know and trust, uh, saying another thing, I'm very likely to take Don Fairbairn's word over the rest of the group. But the way that this is phrased with this kind of like, yeah, John MacArthur, just 5% of him could take out, like it's it's weird, it's kind of adversarial. And there is this sort of personality cult. I actually don't think that John MacArthur fosters this. Um, I'm no. surprised that he doesn't do more to uh, to try to fight against it. But for example, just trying to find this clip from, uh, from Steve Lawson, I typed in Shepcon 2023 into YouTube. There's a a YouTube channel called walking in truth ministry. And all it is, is video clips of John MacArthur. Like it's not John MacArthur's ministry. It's a ministry that is just clips of John MacArthur. Like, that's weird. That's weird. Like, don't you call it the John MacArthur Greatest Hits YouTube channel if you want, but it's not a ministry to just slice out John MacArthur clips and repost them to YouTube. So there is this weird personality. Personality cult is probably not the the most charitable way to say it. There's this weird elevation of John MacArthur as a Christian celebrity. uh, Because of the role and the stance he took kind of fighting against what were legitimately some some pretty rough tyrannical statements and actions by the california government because of that he does he has got elevated to kind of this hero status um that i i just i don't really fully understand why like it seems like paul would be going like are are you a christian or are you macarthurite like we have people saying, I'm of John MacArthur, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas. Like, it just seems like this slots right into that early discourse in First Corinthians of like, we shouldn't be elevating a particular person to the point where we sort of like, everything filters through them. Everything is compared to them. Like, they're now the standard that's lifted up of what faithful means, of what what good means. It just seems weird. And I don't know. It's just uncomfortable to me. I don't need to keep belaboring that point. I think people
0: get it. I'm with you. It's a weird comment. Can we just say that? Yeah, it's
1: a, it's a strange comment. Sorry. There was also apparently later in the clip, but I haven't been able to find it. I'm able to verify this. There was apparently also later in the clip, some somewhere where he continued on sort of this, like, and I don't know, maybe like the address was supposed to be like, uh, it was supposed to be like a, um, a panegyric or like a, a living eulogy of like, John MacArthur's ministry. Like maybe there was a segment that was like the world, like lifetime achievement award. Maybe it was something like that. And there's a context where this makes a little bit of sense. I don't know. Um, but there was also a statement that was like, it would take 40,000 men to fill that footprint. And I'm like, okay, let's just like, let's just step back a second. And yes, hyperbole. Okay. I get it. I get hyperbole. I understand it. But like, do we really have to be that hyperbolic? Like you're really going to say that? Like, you know, men like, uh, Carl Truman and Scott Swain and you know even like other people in that circle like are, are the people who are saying this I'm like yeah well like Paul Washer we're going to need 40,000 Paul Washers to fill the John MacArthur footprint it just it's just strange it's just a weird thing so i'm just denying kind of this weird elevation of personality that we've talked about before like christian celebrity is kind of a plague on the young restless reform movement it's kind of like endemic to that movement. And a lot of us still have this sort of weird hangover that where we we latch on to a particular person and we can't get past that. And it's just not healthy.
0: It's hard. There's a proclivity for all human beings to want to give somebody the acclaim and the credit that is due God. So it's not surprising that in Christian circles, sometimes we would just redirect that slightly. We understand that we want to have these leaders, these spokespeople that represent us and that represent God to us. But that person is the God-man. So really, we ought to spend our time focusing on that. You can't be too hyperbolic about Jesus, right? So that's the great benefit. And those comments really should maybe only be allocated towards him. Again, it sounds a little bit to me, and I am prejudging this a bit, as there's some gradation of, of flattery in there. And I think we all need to be careful. Even what you're saying is there's a good lesson here about flattery. And its purpose and whether or not it has any redeeming quality whatsoever, even when we mean it to be the kind of thing that's encouraging to somebody, that there is a line there where it actually destroys the very thing that you're trying to do. So maybe this, but either way, it just sounds weird. You know what it sounds like to me? And again, I, I always say this because my wife is once again. And I can't understand this watching all of the Marvel movies in proper order <laughs> and investing yourself into these things. But it kind of sounds like this, like Avengers style language, right? Like you yeah. have these people who are like superheroes. And so all that language sounds like how you describe I'm gonna get this wrong, like Iron Man or like or like uh, Doctor Strange, right? Like I you, love you, that you know couldn't you weren't like, even sure that his name is Iron Man. Well, yeah, I'm like I mean, Iron I Man. I was just kind of thinking like would Iron Man be the best example or be like Dr. Strange, like somebody who is like so otherworldly, so outside, like you're basically comparing relative strength and you're saying just 5% of John MacArthur. Yeah. That's all you need. Yeah. Could just wipe out everybody just five. Like if he gave us six, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's just weird. It's just weird. And it's one of those statements that's so hyperbolic it almost it almost certainly can't be true. Exactly. Like I feel like if we really sat down, we could probably assemble a group of evangelical theologians that we feel are, are equivalent to John MacArthur's footprint, and I don't think it would take forty thousand of them. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong.
0: Also, can I, don't, I don't at me,
1: Steve Lawson.
0: There, there's just something we said also for like good public speaking and to me that's not good public speaking yeah. when you get into that realm of where you're being like so exaggerating it just comes across as trite. So like, you have a voice, you have a pulpit, literally or figuratively, in which you're communicating something. The goal is not to do that thing, in my opinion. So I almost feel like it detracts from your your confidence in the speaker. And of course, anything he's going to say after that is somewhat diminished yeah. by this really extreme language that was brought to bear in the beginning on something that doesn't. you don't need that. So save that language for God. He's the only one that's big enough to stand underneath the weight of all of that. Everybody else will fall and falter. So again, let's just... Let's just chill, everybody. But I mean, there's a lesson in that for me as well in terms of how we speak of of others. So I like that one a lot. I was not where I thought you were going with that. When you started with like Shepcon, I was like, (laughs) oh,
1: here we go. One last thing I'll say, and then we can transition into our topic. The funniest part of all this though is the initial initial tweet that I I saw it on had the quote and then it was like, and followed by a rousing round of applause. When you listen to the actual video, it's like when a stand-up comedian is like, yeah, I was flying through uh, Poughkeepsie the other day and there's one guy in the back that's like, yeah, Woo! yeah, there was like one dude that was clapping. Uh, it was actually a very awkward silence amount of clapping, uh, not a rousing round of applause. Um, there's there's like I don't know, there's thousands of people at this conference and there was like a dozen people that were like awkwardly clapping. So, I mean, I, I guess maybe like on one level, like I'm glad that people that that didn't bring about a rousing round of applause. Uh, maybe it was. Yeah, I'm going to stop because I, I could say some mean jokes that I'm not going to. But yeah, it, it, it it's just weird. So let, let's get into our topic. Um, we're talking about starting no, the Ten wait, Commandments. Wait. No, no denial for me. Again? Oh, I did it again. I'm denying your denial. No, let's do it. You. What's your denial?
0: How dare you, sir? I will try to keep this ever breathed. Part of this is I want to express some gratitude for brothers and sisters who've been tracking with us and me in particular about something. So let me just make this really, really quick. So I'm denying against forgetting that life is actually a test and it's one in which you have to actually perform exceptionally well, or let me say it this way, perfectly. So, so many have reached out to me and have been so kind to pray for me as I've been going through a certification process for the last three years. And I took that test at the end of last month. I'm still awaiting those results, but it's because I'm in this mindset of being uh, nervous, but hopefully not anxious about that whole process, that I've been thinking about one thing in particular, and this has been a, a strong source of testimony and comfort as I've meditated on it, and that is I've been thinking about what John Bunyan and others have written, especially John Bunyan in his treatise on the fear of God. The Puritans in particular are bringing forward this idea, promulgating this concept that we just ought to be fearful of the test that's before us in how we live our lives, that we do get judged by God. But the question is whether or not our judgment falls squarely under the shoulders, on the shoulders rather of Jesus Christ or on our own. But the person who goes through life and never thinks that there's actually test is like the most condemned and mistaken person of them all. And so I was realizing as I was preparing for this test, which was uh, stupid difficult, honestly, That um, I was just overcome with the fact that you have to distill all of everything down to a single point of performing meritoriously to show that you know something, that you can command information, that you've actually achieved something of worthiness, and that that standard of the achievement is not yours to determine, but it is the examiner's. So right now, I'm still waiting for the results of this exam, and it will be probably another four to six weeks. But here's the thing I know for certain. I don't know what my status is in the eyes of the examiner of the certification. But I do know what my status is in the eyes of God as the examiner of my life, because Jesus Christ has taken the test in full that is required of every human being and has credited his, his own performance in righteousness to me. So I'm not against anybody, all people who forget, even Christians who maybe like playfully or just through no fault of their own forget that actually when you stand before God, it's his heaven. So he gets to decide. He's the examiner. And so we need to realize that we ought to be fearful. And I love Bunyan bringing that to light. So there is a test, loved ones. There is absolutely a test. And every person who doesn't think that there is is just sorely mistaken. So I'm also at the same time denying forgetting the test. And also I'm affirming remembering that it's so beautiful that even the night before when I didn't sleep well because I knew this test was coming for me, I'll tell you what I never worried about and don't worry about is I never go to bed fearful that if I die that I will find judgment before God. I will find the judgment that is paid for in Jesus Christ. And therefore, I will find inevitably and subsequently mercy. But I never go to bed worried about that. And I just thought, how good is God to us? that? I'm making this argument from the lesser to the greater, but I would worry about or be nervous about this particular test. I'm never nervous about my status before God because of Jesus Christ. So for what it's worth, if somebody needs to hear that, I hope that that's a word that brings you both conviction and encouragement. And also, thank you, loved ones. So many I know as well in the Reform Brotherhood Telegram, and you go to t.me backslash Reform Brotherhood to find some like-minded individuals that are listening along with us who were asking and praying for me on the 21st of last month. I am so thankful for your prayers, and God ministered to me greatly through your prayers. And I am praying that at the end, my status before God through Jesus Christ in its affirmation will also be echoed by the examiner who is grading <laughs> my questions. Maybe even now, yes. as I speak.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, that's a good word. And and actually, I would love to make a bunch of commentary on your affirmation or your denial, as is our tradition. But it it leads into our topic so well. Actually, you got it. You um, got it. So a lot of times Reformed um, reformed podcasts, w- one of the things you learn if you become a podcaster is series of things are nice because it reduces the amount of planning that you have to have, right? So like a lot of Reformed podcasts will do a series on the Ten Commandments. And we've never done a series on the Ten Commandments until now. We're, we're launching into, in our Christian ethics thing, we're going to be using the Ten Commandments as kind of the scaffolding here. But one of the things that I think Reformed podcasters sometimes get trapped in is spending their entire time on the Ten Commandments talking about what you can and can't do, um, which those are important things to talk about, right? God's law is not a joke. It, it's not abrogated. It's not as though the what you can and can't do isn't an important feature of Christian ethics. Um, however, if you're not careful with, with that kind of conversation, it's very easy to slip into this sort of default legalism where it becomes about like what you're allowed to do. Like sometimes it's like, how far can you press your Christian liberty? Uh, but more often it's what can you, what, what kinds of things can you do that put you outside of God's graces or outside of God's good favor And so today we're going to talk about the prologue. So one of the interesting features of the Reformed Confessions, particularly the Westminster Confession um, or the Catechisms, is that they actually have like a confessional standard for how you break up the Ten Commandments. And one of the things that they do is the the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism pulls the prologue of the Ten Commandments uh, out of the rest of the Ten Commandments and provides commentary specifically on the prologue and what it's there for, what it means, and just to, to cut to the chase, the prologue of the Ten Commandments establishes two things, right? That this is, and we'll, we'll unpack these, but these commandments, this law, this moral law, which is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, is particularly and an emphatically for those who are God's people. Right. right so God starts out the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of ba- out of bondage, right? Or out of the house of slavery. So it's it's give, these laws are given to a people whom the Lord has already claimed. And the second thing is that God is establishing that it's not just that He is God in this general sense, He's God in that He has redeemed these people out of Israel. And so the law is particularly for a people who are not only already God's people. He already has laid claim to them, but he's already rescued them. So everything that we're going to talk about over the next however many weeks, probably 10, but maybe more, however many weeks we're going to talk about it, all of it has to be understood in that light. Right. This is a these are laws. These are um, these are words. These are moral expectations for people who already have their salvation, who already, like Jesse said, they already go to sleep knowing that they're the lords and nothing can change that. So it may feel at times because we we likely will get into some particularities and you probably will disagree with us on some of the ways we apply the 10 commandments to life and that's okay. You may feel like, man, these guys are just being a bunch of legalists. Nothing that we say can be considered legalism because nothing that we say is, is straying into whether or not you're saved or not by definition. So I want to, I want to unpack this prologue a little bit more, but I think that is a good prologue to our whole series because it sort of sets the framework that the, these are laws for Christians who are already saved, already justified, who are already being sanctified, who will certainly be glorified and raised and brought into God's presence on the presence fully on the last day. All of those are foregone conclusions that are baked into the prologue of the 10 commandments.
0: Yeah, I like that. You got like some prologue inception going on there. It's it's like God's prolegomena, isn't mm-hmm. it? He's saying all the things that he needs to say before he can get the things that he wants to say. But what he needs to say is to remind the people that they don't earn their position as his people by obeying these 10 words. He gives them these words because they're already his people. right? And so you can cut to Paul being like, yeah, that's what the Holy Spirit told me to write. Like a walk worthy of the calling. To which you've been called, it's like these are the markers of those whom God has redeemed. This is what the family resemblance looks like. I'm just telling you, follow in the way that yeah. God has already done. What do you call it—the indicative and the imperative? Whether you talk about the fact that God, what He commands, He also allows His people, He gives them the power to and the wherewithal to actually perform. It's all the same thing. And I would say, as just to add to what you said, that what I love about this is if you're following along, you're tracking in, in Exodus 20. That in terms of like the way that, you know, the interpreters have segmented the chapter and and kind of put in these discrete chunks, it starts in 21 with saying, and God spoke these words. So like we have in this only and in every way, all this personality of God, all in that first verse, the first two verses are all these personal qualities of God that are revealed In like that traditional, and you can listen to this elsewhere, like the suzerain vassal kind of sensibilities of what it means to uh, create a a, a treaty among multiple people. But what we know is that we have God saying to them, listen, I brought you out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through all these post-sea trials. And then he's giving this short preface where he says, you know, it's just like a big punch to me. It's like a right hook. God reminds his people that he's Yahweh. Special personal name that he has only revealed to Israel, and further, that he's their God, yes, he is a link to the people, he is for them, and he speaks, he speaks to them. So, all of this is like insanely and intensely personal. And so, because God is bringing them in in a special privileged way already, it can't be that somehow these laws make them more important to him, make them his special people. It's exactly just said. The other way around, because God has already established them as purposeful and special. It's like Shilin says, before the cross, they were saved on credit. After the cross, we are saved on debit. God has already done this stuff. He's done all the verbs. And so because of that, he gives them the beneficial and the abundant way of living, which is represented in the 10 words. But you're right. If we get that slightly twisted, we end up with this sense of, well, listen, this is what it means to honor God. I think this is what it means to be saved by God. And of course, by leaning into our identity as people who are saved, whom God has chosen, who God has done all the work for on our behalf, we ought to come along and say, I want to invest myself in being obedient to God as manifest in these 10 words. But if you start to think that in some way this justifies you in any capacity, that is, if you think again that you're taking the test and that somehow you're going to perform even moderately well, you're going to get a 95% or Man, I want to make a MacArthur joke based on what you said, but I move beyond that. <laughs> um, that's problematic. So, like, that's why the prolegomena, the pro- prologue, is so important, and that's why, of course, the creeds of Confession speak to this, which I think you're going to take us to, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So let's read. Um, let's read a couple of questions out of the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, and and I'm I'm going to start, even though we're not going to talk much about it. I'm going to start with question uh, 39, and I'm going to read down through where we're talking about here, because one other thing that I want to make sure we land on, just because we're emphasizing, and I think the Bible emphasizes, that God's people have a particular obligation to God's law that is above and beyond the general obligation that all people have to obey the moral law. It is still the case that all people have an obligation to obey the moral law. Exactly. And that's not just the second table. All people are obligated to yes. have only one god. All people are obligated to observe the Sabbath. All people are obligated not to blaspheme the Lord. So all of those things are true. So I'm going to start reading here in uh, question 39 of the shorter. It says question 39, what is the duty that God requires of man? The answer is the duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. Question 40 what did God at first, referring to the Garden of Eden, at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. Question 41, where is the moral law summarily, summarily comprehended? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. And what is the sum of the Ten Commandments? The sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord your God with all our heart, all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourself. So just... Quick pause. That is sort of the the thesis statement on the law that the Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us. Right? right? God requires us to obey His revealed will, not his not his secret will, His revealed will. He revealed that to us uh, as the moral law. And that moral law is comprehended summarily or summarized in the Ten Commandments. And then again, the Ten Commandments are summarized in the Greatest Commandment and the Second Commandment, which is like it that Jesus reiterates uh, in the Gospels. That's kind of the thesis statement on law or Christian ethics in the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And then it goes on. What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? The preface to the Ten Commandments is in these words, quote, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And what doth the pre- preface, there's a lot of T-H sounds in here, it makes it hard. What doth the clear. preface of the Ten Commandments teach us? The preface to the Ten Commandments teacheth us that because God is the Lord and our God and Redeemer, therefore we are bound to keep all his commandments. So it's all right there. That's, that's Everything we've said so far is, is right there in question 44, because God is the Lord Although it'd be an interesting historical bit of research to figure out, it it doesn't seem like the divines in writing this are recognizing that Yahweh is the name here. Because it's God is the Lord. So God is like the entity. He's the Lord, as in like the ruler of all things. Just minor historical question. But uh, because God is the Lord and our God. So there's other people who do not have the Lord as their God. But because God is the Lord and he's our God and our Redeemer— Therefore, because of those reasons, we are bound to keep all of his commandments. So because right. God is our God and we are his people, we are obligated to obey his commandments, which are, which are summarily comprehended in the, the moral law and the Ten Commandments. So we, we have to sort of understand this framework that although all people are obligated to obey the moral law and, and the moral law is written on the hearts of all people, we right. have been given it in a more clarified, intensive way in the scriptures. And because that God who gave that law is our God and our redeemer, then our requirement to obey those laws is actually elevated. So rather than like what a lot of evangelicals think, and especially like those who are coming out of new covenant theology or, or are part of new covenant theology, rather than the fact that we're Jesus people making it so we don't have to follow the Old Testament law, the Old Testament moral law. It's actually the other way because we're Jesus people. It's even more important for us to follow the law. We're even more obligated to follow the law. That's something that I think is really hard for, for us as a community, us as a generation to really get our heads around. And I think it'll change a lot of things about your practice and your piety. If you really do get your head around that.
0: Yeah. There's a great amount of submission there that we're saying is necessary And this is, I think, what is a little bit difficult for us, especially because, thankfully, in most parts of the world, when we talk about slavery, it's a word without definition or distinction or context. And that's a great thing. But because of that, it means that I think we sometimes fail to appreciate the extent of what God is saying here. When he says, like, he brought them out of the land of Egypt, of course, like, that was the hallmark of what it meant to be an Israelite. Right. That God done this great thing. What does it mean to be an Israelite? That God had brought you from a place where you were in bondage, That the thumb of an oppressor had been over your people in every conceivable way. And that he had miraculously and dramatically, and might I add non-hyperbolically, had brought them out of this great place where they were completely oppressed. And he did that by buying them back. So, of course, the, the idea of this redemption, the word redeemed itself, is it purely an economic concept to buy back at greater price. It is to, to spend almost recklessly, to be recklessly spend thrift in such a way to say that it doesn't matter what the cost of this thing is, I'm going to pay it. To get it back into my possession, and when God does that, we can again cut to Paul saying, "Like this is exactly what I said. You are bought with a price, and when you realize that you've actually been purchased, that the beneficial and the supreme state that you've been given under Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through God, who has been the architect of your salvation, because of this, you just understand you're not your own anymore." And these are like understood this at least theoretically, right? Like intellectually and conceptually they understood this and in exodus 20 this is exactly what god is saying so he's saying listen all you need to do is come into lockstep walk in the way that i have been set before you because you need to understand that your identity must align with these principles because you are mine and not in a way that is overlording but in a way that he talks them as their great father and so we know that he has in mind for us what is both good And what is the best thing? And so from the very beginning, he's saying this is what it means to be part of my people. You know, I'd I'd like to think that, and I would encourage anybody, go and as you're tracking with us, read Martin Luther on the Ten Commandments. Because what you're going to find is that God, he brings this out particularly well, that God is bringing these Ten Commandments, not necessarily in the legalistic frame, but in the frame of freedom. That is, you are free, for instance, in the First Commandment, to worship only me to not be distracted by a thousand other gods, by a thousand other considerations. And so he begins to develop this idea that it is, of course, for freedom that Christ has set you free, and that already is impounded in the giving of the law, both the the first and the second table, both of those things for us. And so I'd like to think that, like, originally, like Martin Luther is talking about this, maybe, like, during the, the alleged, like, the infamous table talk. And I think that he was probably the original who like somebody was like, maybe he stood up and clapped and he was like, I don't know why you're clapping. (laughs) I'm talking about you.
1: I like to think that's where Paul Washer got it from, but... And then he called uh, him a farter (laughs) or a poopy head. And now somebody is going to
0: give us a review just on that one. (laughs) How dare you say the word farter? Yeah, so you should read uh, more of Luther. But do you know what I'm saying? Like this thing is so important. It is so it clouds and clouds is not the right word because it sounds like it's obscuring. It permeates everything about how we understand God giving us this moral law because it is for our good and for his glory. And I'll say it this way. Like even then, which sounds pejorative, even in the old Testament, God is doing what God does. That is he's for his people and the law is for his people. Now I want to be clear. Like if you look into the Psalms where David says like, I love your law. Oh God. You know, there's a difference between the, the law often is in- interpreted as the Torah. And that's more encompassing than just the 10 words. Right. So like the 10 words are going to cut against us. And they're also going to be a soft pillow for us. Yeah. But they do cut against us because they are a test, to your point. Yeah. They're a test. You do have to live up to them. And so if we go to Romans 1 and find that God, God's eternality, his eternal being is displayed in the physical world, the general revelation, we find that that then condemns us underneath the 10 words at the same time as you're saying here that the christian is elevated to a place of profound obedience to the 10 words because this is what god's people look like so if you're going to identify as god's people then you must also work and live and love and walk in lockstep with these 10 words that's just how it is right like fish Swim in the water and birds fly in the sky, and Christians live according to the 10 words.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is one of those things, too. I don't know how to like condense this into the nine and a half minutes that we have left in this episode, but one of the things that I find troubling about a lot of what's going on in the Reformed world and in sort of the niche Reformed world, but um, it's real common among theonomists. It's real common among sort of Vantilian presuppositionalists to sort of deny the idea of common grace on a certain level. And all all this will all come back around, I promise. One of the things that happens with young reformed guys, and I I am certainly not excluded from this. I had my phase of this that I I don't I don't want to act as though I've grown out of it because I think that's pejorative. But I, I'm I'm not there anymore. I don't know whether that's good or bad, but I'm not there anymore. Is there sort of this denial, whether it's explicit or implicit of common grace? And so what happens is, you know, you are either you're not a Christian and you get converted or maybe you're an evangelical and you come into this reformed theology and you recognize that you had a set of moral intuitions that existed prior to your conversion Right And, and you, you sort of come from this weird perspective that like all of those moral intuitions must have been totally wrong. And so you start to reevaluate all of your moral intuitions. And what this sometimes tends to do is it, it fails to recognize that even prior to our conversion, and I'm not talking about our conversion to reform theology. I don't even like to use the term conversion and reference to that, before we were regenerated, before we were justified and, and, and before we became a Christian, when we were lost in our sins, we still had a set of moral intuitions. And a lot of those moral intuitions actually probably weren't too bad. Some of that is because we, the, the moral intuition of our society is still deeply shaped by scripture. Whether, whether the the world wants to recognize it or not, in the Western world, the moral intuition of the culture is still deeply shaped by scripture. But all of that said, there's a natural moral intuition that all people have. Murder is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Lying is wrong. All of those things people universally acknowledge those things are wrong. The problem with that is that we don't recognize that some of our moral intuitions were good. And this this idea that Christians have to follow the law, I actually think is one of those moral intuitions. And we get it instinctively in other situations. So here's the example. Let's say that I am driving across country for some sort of trip and my car breaks down and I, it's the middle of the night and I, I'm i in the middle of the country. I'm driving through Nebraska and I'm, I hike my way to a farmhouse and I knock on the door. I don't am self-service, so I knock on the door and I say, I'm really sorry to wake you up. My car broke down. Um, can I use your phone? And they say, I'll tell you what, why don't you just sleep here tonight? Um, we'll take you into town in the morning. You can call for a tow truck. And I say, oh, thank you so much. I'm so tired. I really just need to sleep. When I go in that house and they go, all right, here are the house rules. I need you to take your shoes off at the door. Um, I need you to clean up after yourself, you know, whatever the house rules might be. I recognize that because in a certain sense, in a temporal sense, that person is my savior in the moment. I recognize that the rules they impose on me that come along with that salvation, right? Salvation in this case being a house to sleep in, a ride into town in the morning, The rules that come along with that, I'm obligated to obey, and I should happily obey them. Out of my gratitude to this person, I'm going to take my shoes off, even if I normally wouldn't. I'm not going to fight them and be like, well, I don't want to take my shoes off. Why are you being so legalistic? That situation is a moral intuition that all of us recognize instinctively. Because we sometimes reject the idea of common grace, We also reject that moral intuition. And this is an area that we need to be reshaped in by the scripture itself. And and we need to recognize that moral intuition is a good moral intuition. And just because we're talking about God now, who is the savior and imposes the rules, not as a condition for that salvation, right? The farmer didn't say, as long as you take your shoes off, you can sleep here for the night what he said is, why don't you sleep here for the night? I'll give you a warm meal. You just got to make sure you take your shoes off before you come in the house. Because God is the one who's imposing the rules. Because God is the one who is saving us. And because we reject this moral intuition, a lot of times because of this sort of like associated rejection of common grace, this needs to be reshaped in us. And it's not as though this is the other thing that boggles my mind. Um, I'm just going to use, I'm going to use the seventh commandment as example, right? When I get married, when I got married, it's not like I begrudgingly say, I'm just never going to have any sort of romantic relationship with another woman. I can't believe I have to be faithful to my wife. That's not at all what happens in a marriage. It's this joyful occasion where I get to be faithful to this woman for the rest of my life. I get to devote myself to this woman and no one else right and you could you could have that same kind of situation with any of the other commandments following god's law should be a joy to us because god is our savior and our lord and he's given us these laws for our good because they reflect who he is and that i think is the the main point of the prologue that we're trying to call out is that the prologue is reminding us that this law comes to us not as a burden or as an unnecessary constraint on our freedom, but as the joyful obedience to the one who saved us. This is what thankfulness and gratitude to our Savior looks like. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to get into the details about what that means over the coming weeks when we go through the the Ten Commandments to talk about each one. But that's what joyful, loving gratitude looks like. It's obedience to the laws. And this is where Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not because that will somehow keep you in God's grace, because that's the natural outcome of loving God.
0: And that's the freedom that Luther speaks about, isn't it? It's this idea that when we see the law, especially these 10 words, as they're meant for us, what we find is that they are God's good toward us. They're essentially, and this is going to be a little bit trite, is they are God's life hacks for living that this is what it means to be a Christian. And I would take it like one step further. Now here, I'll be slightly hyperbolic. And that is, it's great. It, it would be preferable if we get ourselves to a place of obedience. And by I mean, get ourselves, that is, the Holy Spirit changes our hearts in such a way that we have at least a want or a desire to desire to be obedient because we are grateful to God. Even if we can't get there, it doesn't remove the fact that he owns us, that when he selects the people for himself, this is what he expects. In the same way that, like, if you bought like a pair of uh, shoes, sneakers, trainers for our continental listeners, or what's like the midwest tennis shoes? Is that how they say it in the Midwest? Like <laughs> if you bought a pair of sneakers, trainers, or tennis shoes, it would be your prerogative to use them as you want. Why? Because they're yours. You bought them. They belong to you. They're part and parcel of your own ownership. And God says, because you are mine, not to be mine, you need to do these things, but because you are mine, this is what it looks like. So, and we'll find out that, like, this allegiance, like you're saying, is at the heart level. This is where, like, we can just throw out kind of perfunctory obedience for the sake of somehow making ourselves seem like we're more Christian or seem like we're more pious, or merely if we exhibit these qualities that somehow we've achieved them. The standard that Jesus reminds us of in his own ministry, in his own preaching is that the focus from the beginning was always on the heart's allegiance and desires. You know, the first and the last words would be like really unenforceable in a human court of law. I mean, how could you get enough evidence to convict somebody of something that can't be observed? And that fact shows us that God's law has always cared about the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's no room in this covenant for outward technical conformity from people whose hearts are far from God. The law was meant to be a manifestation of drawing us closer to God's heart because he's revealing his essential character, his attributes, and his nature in these laws. But we're used to thinking about laws like, you know, like the speed limit is not necessarily revealing something about the entity that gives them to us, but something about how we just ought to behave. And the law here is more deep and more lovely than that, which is, of course, why David can say, I love your law. yeah. So we need to, I think, fall in love, all of us, with God's law all over again. And I'm hoping that this series will really help us do that very thing.
1: Yeah. Well, we have crossed over the hour mark, so we should wrap this up. Jesse, I'm wicked excited about this series.
0: Wicked Uh, excited. excited. Listen, here's the thing, Tony, you're going to have to explain that to our non New England people, because I found people find that phrase to be somewhat off-putting and confusing at times. Yeah, I see so you're see so your you're bristling, but I can't use that where I live. I had to eradicate it from my language because it confuses people. See, this confuses me because
1: <laughs> I I do not associate that phrase with New England. I'm not sure why, but I've oh, so, I've been saying wicked as an intensifier as forever. long as I can remember, long before I moved to New England. Since so, security past well, not since eternity passed, but since 1983 passed, I guess. I suppose I probably didn't start talking in, in 1983, but maybe I did. Maybe I was like, maybe wicked was my first word.
0: Okay. So do you, but I think it's appropriate usage here, of course yes. I'm pro wicked as a modifier, but I think you should like stack rank that against other words you could have used there and why you use. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. One. So like I could have said, I'm really excited. Yes. Uh, a little bit less intense might be. I'm very excited yes and a little bit more intense would be i'm wicked excited there we go so it's like it's like be- good better best wicked is the way That's that it works tough. So That's the stuff. all of that said, I'm wicked excited about this ironic, it's an ironic use of word actually considering the content, but I'm wicked excited about this, uh, about this series. I've been wanting to do a series on the 10 commandments actually for quite some time. You and I have talked a little bit about it in the past and I just think it fits. It's the right time. I think now, you know, the, the, the Westminster, Confession uh, and the Catechism specifically, and this is common in a lot of different Reformed uh, Catechism bodies, divides up the the body of doctrine into what we are to believe and then how we are to serve God. Right? What is what is it that man must believe concerning God, and what duty does God require of man? That's the structure of the Catechism, and in a really a very real sense, that's the structure of our faith, and that's the structure of Paul's teaching. So I'm excited because this feels like. This feels like a uh, a satisfying like resolution of a note. There's that funny see, funny clip in uh, the office where Andy is Andy Bernard is singing something and someone stops him and he says, oh, I feel like I I feel like I held in a sneeze. And I think sometimes we feel like we've held in a sneeze when we do our systematic theology because we don't get to the practical application of it. We can talk about the application of the doctrine of the Trinity, and that's all good and well, and we love to do that. But the actual practical application of systematic theology is the application of God's law to our life. So I'm yeah. very wicked, super extra excited about this series, <laughs> and I can't wait to get into kind of the next uh 10 to 12 episodes-ish yeah. of, of talking about
0: Christian ethics. People got to come hang out. It's going to be great. I have a confession of a different kind. I legitimately thought we had already done a series. On <laughs> the- you? I don't think
1: we have. <laughs> Maybe we have. Maybe this is a coconut oil thing. No, I don't no. think we have.
0: I, I, I trust you implicitly with this, and I, and I don't know why you're confused. I'm talking about you. So I I have no idea. I thought we already did one. It's obviously true that we did not. So um, I shouldn't have admitted this, but I I really thought at some point, I mean, we talked about the Ten Commandments, right? But did we go through them one by one? I don't think we
1: did. We've done done at least 10 episodes on the Second Commandment. So maybe that's what you're thinking of. We did the moral law, and I'm sure we, I mean, we talked about the three uses of law. We talked about the moral law. So I'm sure we've covered a lot of this ground in one form or another. Um, but I don't think we've done, maybe I'm the one that's wrong. It's certainly possible.
0: No, I I trust you. You're always so good at organizing us uh, (laughs) through all these things. So I I, I trust you. So here's the thing, listeners, loved ones, just invite everybody to come along. I mean, what better time is there to introduce somebody into this long series of podcast episodes and say, you know what? Let's talk about the 10 commandments. (laughs) You're definitely going to want to get in on this. But I mean, I said that somewhat tongue in cheek. We're about to start. We're about to get after it hard. So come in hot with everybody and let's all do this together. So, and again, I would be remiss as we end if I didn't, again, of course, give the plug. If you want to join in with some great conversation and you're looking to have a really organic way of interacting with other listeners who are these lovely, like-minded brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, maybe meeting new family that you didn't know were out there, yeah. but definitely are. The one way to do that is through this messaging app. It's Telegram, but if you go to t.me backslash to Brotherhood, what you'll do is you'll get a link and you can go in and see all these amazing conversations that are happening. And you're immediately going to find some family. It's like walking into a house that you didn't know that you already owned. And there's a meal on the table waiting for you. That's exactly what this chat is like. So I'm going to say that that's our call to action this week. How do you feel about that, Tony?
1: I'm all on board with that. Uh, There's a great group of brothers and sisters in there, and we would love to have you join us. Just do it. Uh, you, I can promise you, you'll be welcomed by some sort of friendly GIF when you join. Somebody <laughs> will make sure to send you a friendly gift, if not get not gift GIF, uh, or or maybe you say GIF. We don't need to get into that. Uh, oh, somebody yeah. will send you a friendly GIF slash GIF about uh, coming into the group. Yeah,
0: so that's way too controversial.
1: It is. It's even more controversial than the law. <laughs> wow, it's true. All right. Well, on that sort of weird note. Until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood.